Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. Well, if you have your uh, Bibles, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we've been walking through like a little mini-series, talking about the mindset of a Christian. And again, it kind of came out of this whole thought process, at least in my life, where in this day and age, in this culture, with all the stuff that's going on, with all the craziness, <laughs> how, is, how is a Christian supposed to think? Uh, what is our mindset today? How are we supposed to reason and, and process with all the stuff that's going on around us? And so I just thought, well, hey, let, let me just think about what the Word of God says. And obviously, Philippians chapter 4 is a great enunciation of the mindset. Uh, the, well, the whole book of Philippians, but specifically chapter 4, is a great uh, articulation of just the mindset of a Christian. And uh, just as a fun side note, I, I cannot express to you how much I love Bible study. It is interesting to me how many times I've come to the Word of God And I've looked at a passage and said, oh, I think I understand what that means. And then I get into the passage and I go, I have no idea what that means. And then as you keep processing through the passage, it is like God just gives some illumination and you're like, wow, that is so crazy. Uh, That happened with this passage that we're looking at. Uh, I've read this and I've read this. I was like, ah, I got this. That makes sense. Uh, Sort of. It's a little abstract. I get that. But, you know, sure. But when I actually got into it, I started looking, and I was like, this, this may be one of the hardest passages for me to put my mind around. Like, I, don't, I don't know how to think through it. But it's amazing just as you keep pressing forward in Bible study how God gives illumination. And just last night as I was kind of wrapping up the study late last night and just praying, I was just like, this is such a cool concept that I never would have— this is not at all what I was expecting this passage to mean. Oh, so I'm excited. Uh, so Philippians chapter 4, uh, we're looking specifically at verses 4 down through verse 9. And uh, I just want to read vor- verse 4 and 5 with you. Uh, last week we looked at verse 4, and uh, I want to look at the beginning part of verse 5 this morning. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Let everyone come to know your gentleness. The Lord is at hand. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let everyone come to know your gentleness. The Lord is at hand. I want to look specifically this morning at this idea of let everyone come to know your gentleness. Uh, when I had read that or I had heard that before, I was like, oh, that, that's sweet. You know, I mean, people should know that in our lives that we are just, we're calm, right? We are stable, we are kind, that there's this meekness about our lives. And all that is true. But that's not what this verse means. And it just, it, oh, I was, I was frustrated as I was getting into this. 
Paul says, let everyone come to know your gentleness. Now, if you spend any time around me, I keep bringing up this idea. My favorite Greek word is the word gnosko. And it's interesting, the word knowledge in Greek, there's several different words that can be translated knowledge or to know something. Uh, One is facts and data and information. That's not this word. So everyone is not to know the facts about your gentleness. In other words, there shouldn't be like a list of your life and they're like, well, he's gentle. Have you ever seen it? No, but we've been told he's gentle, right? I've told that the Bahamas are rather relaxing from countless people, like two. I I mean, I've had a lot of people say, wow, the Bahamas is so relaxing. You can hear the sound of the waves. And I know that. Now, I've never experienced it, never been there, but hey, I, I read it, right? That's not this idea. Uh, there's another idea for knowledge, which has this idea of perception and understanding that, that, oh, I see it. It begins to make sense to me. That's not this word. This word, it's, it's the word, we're, we're, the root of this is gnosko, but this word has this idea of you know something through experience or relationship or intimacy, And of course, the illustration I keep coming back to is, you know, you're driving your car down the road and you see a sign that says 30 miles an hour. You know the speed limit. How did you know that? Facts and data and information, you saw it on a sign. But one day you're driving down the road and you see these lights flashing, right? It's a party going on behind you. And so you pull over and, you know, the party guy comes out, he knocks on your window and says, I need your proof of registration and your license and you know, I want to invite you to the party, you know, and you're like, well, I'd love to go to the party. So, you know, yeah, here, here's my license and registration. And he, he gives you a receipt that you have to pay $247 for so that you can participate in this party. You get done with that. And someone says, what's the speed limit? You know, the speed limit in a whole nother way than if you saw it on a sign, you've experienced the speed limit. In fact, you have a proof, you've paid $247 proof that you know that speed limit. See, this idea is the world should know your gentleness. Well, how do they know that? Not because they hear about your gentleness, not because there's even a perception about your gentleness. It's because they have literally experienced your gentleness. That this isn't like, let's talk about gentleness, but not live it. This is what would it look like for everyone to actually experience and know intimately because they've encountered your gentleness. That's this idea. That's powerful which means you can't merely talk about gentleness. You can't say, well, yeah, I'd love to be a gentle person someday, but then not actually express it. You've got to live this thing in order for the world to know this, which is the whole impetus of this, of this passage. Now, <clears throat> what are they actually supposed to know? <laughs> gentleness. Uh, the ESV says reasonableness. Uh, I started looking at this word, and I, I honestly... <laughs> No joke. I'm looking at going, I have no idea what that means. Because this word is unlike like, uh, the fruits of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. That's not this word. <laughs> and I was like, well, what, what on earth is this word? <clears throat> and and this, this is what the Greek dictionary, the lexicon, translates this word as. Just, just listen to this and see if you even like it. This bothered me. (laughs) The lexicon translated this word as merciful or tolerant of slight deviations from moral or legal requirements. And I was like, excuse me? You're telling me that this word means that I am to, here's here's what the law says, 
someone disobeys that law and I overlook that. That I'm tolerant. And I'm like, I have problems with that language. I don't know what you want to think about. I had problems with it. Uh, another, another lexicon said, it's not insisting on every right or not insisting on the letter of the law or custom, rather yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, and tolerant. Now, I don't know what you want to do with all that, but that, I have a problem with that. Just the language of it, I have a problem with that. And so I was like, well, I, I'm curious of, well, how, how, do, how do the Bible translators translate this word? And they have no idea how to translate this word. Every translation, there's only a couple of repeats. It seems like every translation uses different words. So <laughs> here's the list. You ready for this? One, uh, the Wycliffe translation, this is so back in the day, patience. Tyndale translated as softness. The Geneva Bible said the patient mind. Rhymes Bible said modesty. The Revised Version says forbearance, though in the margin it says gentleness. Uh, Wymouth says the forbearing spirit. New English Bible says magnanimity. I don't know if I said that right, but there's that word. The NLT says be considerate. ESV again is reasonableness. The CSV is graciousness. The NASB is gentle spirit. And if I didn't list it, it's because it's an overlap of some of the other ones. Uh, there's a guy who did a kind of a paraphrase of the New Testament, and he said, let all the world know that you will meet a man halfway, which I didn't like that at all either. <laughs> so I was like, all right. So apparently the Bible translators don't even know how to translate this word because it's all over the place. And so again, I was looking at the Greek lexicons, and I said, well, it might be helpful then to, to look at uh, some of the big scholars, because, you know, hey, if there's a big Bible scholar and they know Greek really well, maybe they can give me some insight on this word. And they didn't help me either, because they all said, they helped, but they all came to the point of saying that in the New Testament, this was one of the hardest words to translate. That when you're trying to get to the, the, the essence of what this word is actually saying, that it's it just, we don't know what to do with it. And I'm like, great, why did I get stuck with that word in my passage? Now, again, this word is different than the one in Galatians 5 with the fruits of the Spirit. The one with the fruits of the Spirit has this idea of, it's, it's a, when it says to be gentle in the fruit of the Spirit, that what comes out of the life of the Spirit within you is that it, it's almost like it's the opposite Spirit. In other words, here's how the world behaves. Here's the Spirit of the world. What is gentleness? It's not doing that. It's literally responding to something different than how the world responds. It's I'm going to look at my, my situation or my chaos or my circumstance and I'm going to respond differently to this situation than how I would have when I was living in sin. So when I was living in the world, when I'm living in the, the mindset of culture, everyone responds a certain way. That's easy to see. You look at COVID. COVID happens, what do you see? And in all the news programs and everyone's screaming and everyone's running down to the supermarket and taking all the toilet paper and all the canned goods and, and, and everyone is going through this process of like, how are we going to survive? So what is gentleness? Not responding that way. <laughs> Why? We're Christians. So how do we respond? We respond out of the flow of the Spirit. So I respond with peace. I respond with graciousness. I respond with, hey, there's one toilet paper thing left. And this person is screaming, going, hey, I have to have it. But I was there first. 
And I say, oh, please, by all means, I'm a Christian. God will supply. <laughs> you, know, it's, you respond differently. That, that's the idea in the fruits of the Spirit. Again, it could be understood as gentle or meek or humble or even tempered. But again, that, that's fruit of the Spirit word. Our word, again, it's different. It's interesting. There's one passage in Scripture where both of those words show up. It's actually interesting. They, they use the word from the fruit of the Spirit, and they use our word here from Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. And you don't have to turn that. I'll just read it to you. But it's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, Paul, Paul is communicating, and he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness, that's the fruit of the Spirit word, by the meekness and the gentleness, that's our word, Philippians 4, 5, gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. So Paul says, <laughs> here's what's been going on. When I'm with you, I'm just kind of meek. I'm rather humble. But when I leave you, I'm writing you harsh letters. I mean, I'm in your face. But he uses the two words. Isn't it interesting that he says, I'm coming with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. In other words, it's not that one, okay, one's the fruit of the Spirit, the other one is something else. They are both the life and the attributes of Jesus Christ. Is that good with everybody? In other words, it's not like, well, if, if, I, if I have the fruit of the Spirit and I have this version of gentleness, whoo, I'm a Christian, but hey, the moment I have this one, mm, we're questioning that. No, because Paul says, hey, you're, this gentleness, Philippians 4 or 5, is to be known to everybody in the world. So again, what, what on earth is this? Okay, we, we know it's an attribute of Christ, but it's a little different than the fruit of the Spirit thing. Again, the fruit of the Spirit thing is, however the world responds, however the mindset of the culture of the world is, that I am responding in a totally different or opposite behavior. It's, it's, it's a humility. It's a, it's a meekness. So what is the Philippians 4 or 5 thing? So I went to the scholars and uh, I'm like, okay, you've got to help me because I obviously don't know Greek this well. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, in the context, help me process this through. Uh, one, uh, the word biblical commentary, which I really love, uh, said it's interesting that this word has a long history and it goes back all the way even to classical Greek. If you know how Greek has functioned uh, in, in the, in the way, way before the New Testament time period, classical Greek, right? It was the time of Alexander the Great and Homer and uh, Aristotle and Plato, right? the, the classical Greek. And, and the Greek kind of changed by the time it got to Koine here in the New Testament. But when you look at the classical Greek idea of this word, which was used all over the place, uh, Aristotle actually talks a lot about this word. And whether or not you like Aristotle doesn't actually matter. I don't really care for myself. I mean, he's just, I don't, I don't read him, in other words. <clears throat> it's not that I dislike him, I just, I'll quit digging a hole. So the way that Aristotle talks about this word is that he talked about our word, gentleness, in contrast with another word. So when Aristotle was using this word in classical Greek, he was using it as a contrast to this idea of strict justice. So over on, this, I'll put it on, over on this side, you have strict justice. It is a demand of the law. Whatever the law, it's black, white, nothing. There's no argument out of this. I mean, if you go one mile over the speed limit, you are guilty, and we are going to put the, the heaviness of the law upon you. That, that's this idea. 
So what's the contrast of that? Aristotle says it's our word, gentleness. So here's what he said. Uh, For Aristotle, it meant it was a generous treatment of others that while demanding equity, it does not insist on the letter of the law. It is willing to admit limitations and it is prepared to make allowances so that justice, get this, so that justice does not injure. Isn't that interesting? It is a quality, therefore, that keeps one from insisting on one's full rights where rigidity would be harsh. Well, that didn't fully help me. (laughs) So I looked up another scholar, and he said that the word gentleness stands for the spirit or attitude that does not seek to retaliate. It denotes one's willingness to give and to take instead of always standing rigidly on one's own rights. In a number of languages, this idea of gentleness toward, uh, toward everyone can be best expressed negatively. So here's how, here's how a scholar expressed this in the negative. To be gentle means that you do not always insist that you are right, or you do not be demanding in your attitude toward everyone. Hmm, that's interesting. Let me give you a couple other definitions. Uh, another scholar said that the Greeks themselves explained this word as justice and something better than justice. So it's not you throw out the justice, it's just that you look at the higher law behind the justice. He says that they said that this, our word, ought to come in when strict justice became unjust because of its generality. So when you're looking at the law, well, this is what the law says. I know, but, but when you're looking at the situation, it, the law is actually going to harm this. So you actually look at a higher law above the law. He goes on and says, there may be individual instances where a perfectly just law becomes unjust or where justice is not the same thing as fairness. People have the quality of this word if they know when not to apply the strict letter of the law, when to, re, when to relax justice and introduce mercy. Christians, as Paul sees it, are men and women who know that there is something beyond justice. It's really interesting to me. And one other scholar said that this word suggests the absence of self-assertion or claiming of one's rights. So I was looking at all of this saying, okay, <laughs> how on earth do I understand this word? Because I, I understand, okay, in the, in the fruit of the spirit idea, the idea of gentleness is, well, just don't respond like the world responds. Be a Christian in your thought process. So here we are in Philippians 4, 5, and Paul says, hey, rejoice always. Do you know what everyone should know your life for? Joy and gentleness. So if, if everyone knows me for my gentleness, does that mean I throw out the law? No. Well, does that mean I throw out justice? No. But it seems like if, if everyone's going to know me by my gentleness, that I'm actually not looking at the letter of the law as much as I'm looking at a higher law above the letter of the law. So in my attempt, and it's a working definition, but in my attempt to define this word, here is my best Here's my best attempt at it. <laughs> gentleness, which by the way is the Greek word epiakes, epiakes, epiakes. This word gentleness is a willingness to demonstrate love rather than argue and prove yourself right or to demand your own rights. 
It is a willingness to overlook offense for the sake of showing someone else mercy and love. It is to go beyond expectations in showing mercy when justice is expected and even required. Simply, it is to respond like Jesus in every situation to showcase his life, his love, and his character to the world around us even when they don't deserve it. I don't know if that even helped you, but that at least gave some clarity in my mind that, that when, when I have the right to demand my own rights, instead of demanding my own rights, I'm willing to show love instead. That when someone offends me and I go, I have, I have the obligation. In fact, it would be right and proper to take them to the wall on this thing that I show them mercy. In other words, this idea of gentleness goes on, this, it has this idea of that what, what is coming out of my life is that there's a higher law called love and mercy and that I am not demanding my own rights. I'm not demanding restitution for my own, the, the offenses that people have caused me. In other words, I am willing to be redemptive to the people around me. Do you know how Jesus lived? Every single person that Jesus encountered, he was redemptive to. Think about that. I, I do not know a single case where Jesus was not redemptive. Now, redemptive may be, it may be different than you're thinking. It does not mean he was enabling people to live in sin. He never did that. Uh, being redemptive means at times letting people leave. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, hey, I want to follow you. Hey, I'll do whatever you want. Jesus says, great. You have all this money. That is your God. So give up, give up your money and come follow me. Okay, give all your money to the poor and come follow. And the man said, ah, I don't think I can do that. And the man walked away and Jesus says, well, have a good life. Enjoy your money. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't go run after him? Now, hey, if a really rich person came to church and he says, hey, I want to follow, well, give all your money. Hey, give all your money to the poor. And he says, ah, I can't do that. I would have been like, how about 50%? You want to give 10? That's biblical. See, Jesus didn't do that, though. He just he watched the man walk away. So when we talk about this idea of being redemptive, then, redemptive is not being a pushover. What is the most redemptive thing that, a, that a, an abusive wife can do to her husband? She is called to forgive her husband. But maybe the most redemptive thing that the wife can do to her husband who is beating her is call the cops. Because it is only when he comes to the end of himself and he's sitting in a jail cell that maybe God can speak to him because he's not listening otherwise. That would be redemptive. Does that make sense? She still has to forgive. But what would, when you look at the life of Jesus, he is always redemptive. But Jesus was not living toward the letter of the law as much as he was living on a higher law, which was love and mercy. So obviously it didn't make sense to you, so let me give you some illustrations. Uh, I was just thinking through, through Scripture, uh, specifically the New Testament, just saying, okay, where, where do we see this concept, this idea of gentleness being demonstrated in Scripture? And the more I pondered it, the more illustrations kept popping up. So for example, number one, I'll give you just four quick examples. Number one, the adulterous woman. In John chapter 8, verse 3 through 11, let me just read this. In John 8, starting at verse 3, it says that the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. I always thought it was interesting they never brought the guy. Because <laughs> if she's caught in adultery, there was a guy there. But they grabbed this lady, and 
placing her in the midst, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now listen, listen how they say this. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Come on, Jesus. You know what the law demands? Come on, Jesus. You know what the law requires? Come on, Jesus. You, you know what this thing says? So what do you say? Again, they're trying to trap him. <laughs> uh, so John records, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood and said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Women, or sorry, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, No one, Lord. Now think about this. Here's a woman who, according to the letter of the law, should be put to death. According to the demand of the law, should have stones hurled at her head, and she should be killed. Jesus who is perfect righteousness. I mean, nobody else had, could claim they had it without sin. Jesus is the only one in this whole group who legitimately could pick up a rock and throw it at the woman and kill her because he had no sin. But what does he do? He showed gentleness. And he said, neither do I condemn you, and from now on, sin no more. What is that? Looking at the letter of the law, it demands justice. We understand that. It's not that we throw out the law. Hey, we get that. But it's looking beyond the letter of the law and saying, how can I be redemptive? How can I show love and mercy to this woman? Now, we don't know the end of her story, but I cannot wait to hear the end of her story. I mean, could, could you imagine what the end of her story must have been like? Presumably. Why? Because she was shown mercy and love instead of the letter of the law. What do we call that? Gentleness. Or as the ESV would say, reasonableness. Another illustration is the uh, Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, <clears throat> Jesus, is, uh, Jesus was asked about, you know, who, you know, the whole neighbor question, you know, like, hey, who's my neighbor? Yeah, I'm to love my neighbor as myself, but who's my neighbor? Right? The, the, the teacher, the... This, uh, lawyer is trying to figure out the loophole of who does he have to love and who can he not love and jesus oh let me tell you a story so in luke chapter 10 verse 30 jesus said a man was going down from jerusalem to jericho and he fell among robbers by the way this this road is i think it's a 17 mile journey was, was very dangerous during the time of jesus you never went there by yourself why because there's always robbers there, there was there's always issues so he says, here's this man, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, and he departed, leaving him half dead. And of course, the listeners of Jesus have been like, of course, because you don't go down that road by yourself. It's dangerous. Now, by chance, Jesus says, a priest was going down that road. That would have made sense to them. Well, why? Because here are the priests doing their, their priestly duties up in the temple of Jerusalem, but a lot of those priests lived down in Jericho. And so, hey, of course, you know, hey, my time at the temple is done. I have closed it down for the week. So, hey, I've got to make my way down. He's likely not by himself. 
he's likely riding a donkey. He has his servants around him, and he, he's, he's making his way down. But Jesus says <clears throat> that when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And it's interesting, when you, when you look at the path that Jesus is referring to, a lot of times it's no more than three feet wide. So it's not like, you know, he's on that side of the road, and then I'm way over on this side of the road. This is the only way that the, the priest could go on the other side of the road is basically he had to step over the man. That this wasn't just say, well, I'm, I'm not going to see him. I'm not going to see him. This is, I can't miss him, but I'm not stopping. That I, I refuse to show this man mercy. And yet, of all the people in Israel, he should have been the one. Why? Because he's the priest. He's the one that is supposed to showcase more than anybody else the life and the character of God. So Jesus says, likewise, a Levite. Oh, who are those guys? These are the guys who are writing the scriptures. These are the guys who are like, woo. I mean, you got the Pharisees, and then right underneath them, you got these Levite guys. So the Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, do you know who those Samaritans are? The Samaritans were the half-breeds. Right after the Babylonian captivity, they started coming back and these guys had, during that time, time period of the Babylonian captivity, had intermarried, these Jews intermarried with the Gentiles, and now they had created this race called the Samaritans, which means they weren't Jews, they weren't Gentiles, eh, they're half-breeds. And the Jews just detested these people. In fact, they had the whole middle part of Israel, and a good Jew, they despised the Samaritans so much that they would walk three days out of, their, out of the way, an additional three days, so they can go around Samaria to go, up, to go up to the Sea of Galilee area. That we do not like these people at all. So could you imagine, here's Jesus saying, here's this man, he fell on, fell on this ground, all these robbers kind of stuff. And everyone goes, well, of course. But then the priest, everyone's like, woo, priests. And he stepped over them. Then there's this Levite. Woo, Levites. He stepped over them. Samaritans. Ugh, we hate Samaritans. But what does the Samaritan do? As he journeyed, he came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds. By the way, scholars tell us that the only way he probably did that is he had to rip his own clothing to, to bind up the wounds. So he's literally ripping his own clothing to bind up the wounds of this man. He poured oil, uh, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set the man upon his own animal, which means he's now walking. So likely here, he's a business guy, he's making trade, he has an animal, he's, he's, he's enjoying this pomp and circumstance riding on the animal, and he literally takes up himself, rips his own clothing, gives of the oil and wine that he had for the journey, and like gives up his own comfort on the ride to take this man whom he does not know, who is not like him culturally, who does not look like him, act like him, talk like him, and what does he do with him? He brings him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So this wasn't just meeting a need. This was like going beyond and beyond and beyond meeting the need to the point where he says, hey, innkeeper, uh, here's some payment uh, for his room. By the way, the two denarii, a lot of scholars say, would probably be worth a month's uh, rent at the hotel. So, hey, innkeeper, I'm giving you a month. Hey, I'm prepaying a month for this man to heal. But hey, if you end up spending more than that, just put it on my tab. I will pay it when I return. What do you call that? 
gentleness. That what the law demanded is that he walk over him. What did the law demand? You ignore the man. Why? Because I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. I don't, I don't have interactions with you. And hey, even your own fellow men refuse to help you. So there is no obligation for me. But then what does a man do? Show gentleness. He literally goes out of his way, inconveniences himself, and literally shows mercy beyond that even what was expected. And I love what Jesus says at the end of this. He looks at the lawyer and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man who's a good Jew refused to even say it was the Samaritan. Look at this. He just says it's the one who showed him mercy. Yeah, he showed him kindness. He was gentle. Uh, Another illustration is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, You have heard that it said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What is that all about? Demanding your own rights. What is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth all about? Hey, well, this is what the law says. You poke out my eye, I'm going to poke out your eye. Hey, you bust out my tooth, I'm going to bust out your tooth. You pop my tire, I'm going to pop your tire. Right? It is a demand of equity and justice. And hey, there's no, there's no wrong with that. Hey, that's what the Old Testament says. But Jesus says, hey, I want to give you a brand new perspective. I want to give you a higher law. What's the higher law? He says, I say to you, uh, this is Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one. What do you call that? Gentleness. Hey, if someone comes up to you and slaps you, you realize that what you have by the, by the letter of the law is that you have the right to slap them back. So instead of demanding your justice and instead of demanding your rights, what do you do? You say, have that one too. Jesus goes on and says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, which has this idea of basically he's going to take your underwear, hey, give him your cloak as well. So they're going to sue you and take everything. Even your own clothing. So what do you do? You want my jacket? And if anyone forces you to go one mile, which is the whole, the whole Roman mentality, so here's Rome and the, and the command from Rome, right? Rome had dominated Israel. They'd taken over Israel. And the law was that a Roman soldier can go up to any, to, to any person in the Roman Empire and say, carry my stuff. And they would have to literally carry their stuff. But they're only... A, Basically, the only requirement was to go one mile. So, hey, you had no right but to carry his stuff. But all you had to do was for one mile. So the whole way you could be going five more feet, five, four more feet, three more feet, boom, carry it yourself. You had the right to do that. By law, you could demand your own rights. You had had to carry the stuff. You had to go the first mile. But then, hey, you could dump that thing and demand your own rights and leave. But what does Jesus say? Rather, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What do you call that? Gentleness. And maybe the greatest expression of this idea of gentleness is the cross. Do you know what the cross is? It is a demonstration of gentleness. Sounds bizarre. But it's a demonstration of our word. Epia case. It's this idea that what does justice demand? Well, justice demands that I go to hell. What does the law require? The law requires that I'm punished. And isn't it amazing 
that because of the cross of Christ, we do not get what is required of us, that we do not get justice, we do not get punishment, we do not, what do we receive? We receive Jesus' gentleness. We receive his mercy and his love. And you know these verses, but Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Hey, what is the punishment of sin? That there is a legal requirement of sin. It's death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here I am shaking my fist in God's face. Here I am living in rebellion. And what does he do? Shows me gentleness. He makes a way of escape. He provides salvation and freedom. If I would embrace it and believe in him. Paul goes on in the Romans 5 passage and says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? What is that? Gentleness. Now, when you look at this idea of gentleness, this, this word here in our passage, Philippians 4, 5, it shows up seven times in Scripture. Uh, and let me just kind of give you, give you a couple of these really quick just to kind of give you the context. One of the ways this word is used is as a requirement for an overseer of the church. So if you're going to be a pastor, if you're going to be an elder, if you're going to be a deacon, guess what it demands of you? That you're gentle. So Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, He's speaking to Timothy, talking about the overseers, and he says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. That's our word. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So how, how, how is an overseer of the church supposed to live? He's sober-minded, he's not angry, he's, he, he's not greedy, he's not prideful, and he can actually look at a situation and see the greater redemptive love and mercy that needs to be shown. And hey, if you're going to pastor a church, you need that. Because you're going to have to deal with people. <laughs> uh, James uses this word in connection with our speech. He says, but the wisdom that is from above, he, he contrasts the wisdom from above and the wisdom from beneath. He says, hey, if someone's going to give you advice or if someone's coming at, at you with an accusation, how can you tell the difference of, is it coming from a fleshly motive or is it coming from a heavenly motive? James says, oh, well, you can tell that. He says, hey, the, the fleshly motive is this way. And he says, let me explain what the heavenly wisdom is. He says, the wisdom from above is first pure and it's peaceable, gentle, It's open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. It's interesting. Someone comes up to you and says, hey, you are doing this all wrong. Let me show you where you're wrong. Do you know what that actually exposes of you? It's interesting. Because of YouTube and all the podcasting stuff, which I love, you realize that everyone has a platform. And it's interesting. On my, I was looking for something, some some sermon or something. And on my channel says, wouldn't you like to also see this? And it was like, why so-and-so is, is, a, is, is a heretic? Why so-and-so is biblically illiterate? Why so-and-so? And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm like, I, I, thought, I thought I liked that guy. You know? So I just <clears throat> clicked on it for a second. 
And he was, he was kind. He was, he was saying it in a kind way. But he's like, do, do, here's what this person says, and this is why they're wrong. Bum, 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 and, and they're totally confused. And, bum, 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 and, and I'm like, maybe they are. But just the way you're presenting it tells me that there is a problem in your life. Hey, should we point out wolves? Of course we should point out wolves. Should we point out air? Of course we should point out air. But there's a manner in which that should come about. Well, how should I do that? Well, it should be pure. It should have an, the pursuit of peace. In other words, you're, you're looking for reconciliation. You're wanting them to turn to Jesus. You're wanting them to repent. See, this is an, an, an attack, slanderous thing where I'm, I'm going to put a whole bunch of darts at you. This is, hey, I, I'm, I'm desperate for you to turn to Jesus. Hey, I, I, I want you to turn to him. It's gentile, gentle. That, yeah, they may be seeing all these things wrong, but I'm actually going to look above that and treat them in love and mercy. As if, just like if I say something wrong up here, it's not because I'm intentionally trying to say it wrong. And if you come at me and you yell at me, I'll, I'll listen. But that won't go nearly as well if you say, Nathan, I'm concerned. I heard this, and I don't know if you meant that, but, but would you think this through? And hey, would you just pray about this? And See, I, I am much more agreeable to listen to that kind of stuff. And I want to be open. But if you're yelling in my face, I didn't, I didn't mean to say it. Does that make any sense? So Paul says our speech then and how we just talk in everyday manner should be pure and peaceable and gentle and it's even open to reason. Maybe I misunderstood what you said. So could you explain what you meant? So I'm not attacking you. I'm not just... Sorry, I'll get off that soapbox. But Paul says you've got to be gentle in your speech. Uh, Peter says that we're to be gentle in our work. He's talking about servants and masters, but, but listen, listen to the language about how a servant is to respond to his master. In 1 Peter 2.18, Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to do good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So servants, hey, you are to work, and even if your master isn't just, he's unjust, that wasn't good grammar. Your, your, your master does not have justice in the way that he handles things, right? He's, he's schmoozing. He's, he's corrupt. He's, you are not to follow that. You are still to be gentle. So if your master's gentle, woo, good. But even if he's not gentle and he's unjust, you're still called to be gentle. That's kind of the idea. Uh, Titus, uh, <clears throat> in Titus 3, 1 and 2, Paul talks about the fact that you are to be gentle in everyday life. He says, remind them, Titus, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So how am I to live every moment of my life then? With gentleness. Which then makes sense to you in our context, because Paul says, hey, rejoice in the Lord always. I, I'll say it again, rejoice. Let everyone know that you're gentle. So whether it's in your speech or in your conduct or whether you're at work or whether you're with your family or whether you're, hey, whatever you are doing, you are to be gentle. And it's interesting in this context, it's not just to be gentle with fellow believers. You are to be gentle with whom? Everyone. Now, I can understand being gentle with you guys because that would be easy for the most part. 
But when you put yourself in his world, you got to remember the Philippian church is being persecuted. The Philippian church is going through hostility. The Philippian church is having persecution. Hey, the Philippian church is being thrown to wild beasts. Hey, the Philippian church has COVID. They didn't have COVID. But, you know, hey, they have, they've got situations going on. And Paul says even in those situations, you are called to be gentle. That even in persecution, when someone is riling at you and they are demanding something of you and, and they are falsely accusing you and you're, you're facing all these hardships and trials and difficulties, how are you to respond to those who are persecuting you? With gentleness. Well, if someone falsely accuses me, I, I need to set this table straight. Paul says, no, just respond in love. Hey, you don't have to defend yourself. Let Jesus defend you. Hey, do not demand your own rights. Hey, do not just, why wouldn't you look at those who are, who are hurting you and, and persecuting you, and in, instead of demanding, demanding, why wouldn't you just show them love and mercy? Because you realize that when you respond that way to the people who hate and, 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 and revile you, it actually testifies of God in your life. Because nobody in their right mind lives that way. Hey, if someone falsely accuses me, I'm going to stand up for my rights. Because nobody else is. Hey, hey, when I'm falsely accused, hey, I'm gonna, I better set the table straight. Hey, when someone's persecuting me, I'm like, you better not be persecuting me anymore. Hey, when someone pokes my eye, I'm going to poke their eye out. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Paul says, why, why wouldn't you, why don't you be like Jesus? That he went as a lamb to the slaughter and opened not his mouth. That, that he was willing to be misunderstood. He was willing to showcase love and mercy even when they didn't deserve it. Here's this adulterous woman, and by all the means of the law, she should have been killed. And Jesus showed her mercy. See, what if we had that attitude toward the people around us? That's hard. And yet our gentleness is to be known, experienced by everyone. I find it interesting that the, uh, the verse right before ours is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Do you realize that the Spirit of God in our lives has set us free to be joyful? That we are no longer enslaved to this idea of having to think about ourselves, to defend ourselves. That what the Spirit of God has done in our life has freed us to actually consider others. That the Spirit of God is making us joy-filled. You know, one of the conclusions I came to last night was, I cannot demand my own rights and be joyful at the same time. That if I'm actually going to be joyful and live in the reality of that, and if, if you don't know what all that means, listen to the last session from last week when we talked about this idea of rejoice. But if I'm actually going to be filled with joy, no matter the circumstance, we're not talking about happiness, so whether I'm happy or I'm sad and I'm, I have tears in my eyes and sorrow in my soul, I can still rejoice. That I've been set free to have joy. But I cannot live in joy and demand my own rights. I cannot have joy and demand me. I cannot live in joy and have the focus on myself. Because the moment the, the focus becomes myself, 
then your focus is not on Jesus, which means the, the source of the joy is no longer in your focus, which means your joy is going to become depleted. So the only way I can remain joy-filled is when my focus remains on Jesus, the source of joy. But the only way I can demand my own rights is when the focus is on myself. So I cannot keep my focus on Jesus, the source of joy, and have to focus on myself and demand my rights. So I, I find it interesting that Paul starts with the joy and the focus, and hey, would you live your life in such a way where the joy of the Lord is your strength? And then he says, don't worry about you. Get your eyes off yourself. Do not worry about your rights. Do not demand your own thing. Hey, in fact, why don't you turn your gaze toward other people and show them the love and the mercy? Well, they don't deserve it. I know that's the point. And aren't you glad that Jesus shows us gentleness? Because we don't deserve it. And yet, what does he show us? Mercy, kindness, gentleness. A chapter earlier, in, or a couple chapters earlier, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says in verses 3 and 4, he says, let me, let me tell you about the life of a Christian. Do not, sorry, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but rather in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look out not for his own interests, but also the interests of others. What do you call that? Gentleness. And in that context, is also defined as the mind of Christ. Do you know how Jesus lived? He lived with this meekness, fruit of the Spirit stuff, and this gentleness. It's not just a responding differently than the culture thinks. It's this idea of looking beyond and seeing a higher law and saying, you know what, I'm not going to turn inward and look at myself. I'm not going to demand my own rights. I'm not going to do what I think I need to do. I'm actually going to show forth love and kindness at the offense that other people do against me. That I'm willing to show forgiveness even if it hurts. Now, I've seen a great illustration of that in this COVID season. And it was not from the church, it was from the secular stuff. It was interesting when the COVID thing hit, here's all these people who are now out of jobs. And they were like, there was this pressing throughout culture that was like, you know what? When it comes to rent, I could demand that you pay. I could demand that, hey, you owe me today's, this month's rent. Hey, I'm going to demand. And there probably were people who were doing this. But it seems like there was a movement that just said, look, we understand that people are out of jobs. Hey, I, I got notices from, you know, like my bank, my utilities just saying, look, we understand people are out of jobs. If you need to have a forbearance, which is actually one of the ways this word is translated, if, if you need us to forbear and, and put, put off this month's rent or you need us to put off the, your utilities for a couple months, yeah, we want you to pay it. But hey, if you, if you need us to work through a system so that you can actually function and live in this season, we are, we are willing to take the hit so that we can help you. Do you know what that's called? Gentleness. And how sad that the culture is willing to do this, and yet how oftentimes in the church we are demanding and we are arrogant and we are... So let me read you my definition again. Just in light of all this, ponder this. Gentleness, epia case, is a willingness to demonstrate love rather than argue and prove yourself right or not to demand your own rights. It is a willingness to overlook offense for the sake of showing someone else mercy and love. It is to go beyond expectations in showing mercy when justice is expected and even required 
In short, it is to respond like Jesus in every situation, to showcase his love, his character to the world around us, even when they don't deserve it. Can I ask you, do you have that? In other words, who who can I show gentleness to today in my world? Who, who can I, rather than demand my own rights and rather than demand my own thing, and who, who can I show gentleness to? Would I be willing to be overlooked and unnoticed today? How can I showcase love and mercy rather than fixate on the offense? See, how can I be redemptive today in everything I think and say and do? How can I go beyond the expectations of mercy like with my family? And rather than demand they meet my needs, what would it look like for me to say, oh, I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to show gentleness. And I don't know how you need to apply this into your life, but you've got to remember that Paul is commanding us. This is a command. Let everyone come to know your gentleness, that the world somehow is supposed to experience the reality of his gentleness. Which again is not the fruit of the Spirit stuff. This is a whole different thought process that goes beyond the expectations, that goes beyond the expectation of mercy. It does not demand, it does not. Our world today needs to see that. Not just because our banks and our utility companies are willing to overlook it, forbear for a few months, but because we as believers are known for our joy. And because we are filled with joy, we can be known for our gentleness. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, this is so convicting to me. I just thought it meant, oh, I could be nice. <laughs> just not get angry. But Lord, the reality is that to be gentle means that I can't think about myself. That I'm willing to overlook my own rights and what I deserve and the offenses that people cause against me and And somehow I'm actually filled with love and mercy toward them. Lord, that is not natural. That is not normal in in the fullest sense. Which means, Jesus, I'm going to have to have you, the fullness of joy in my life. And because of your Spirit who has set us free, not to live focused on ourselves, but to live and dwelt by you, filled with joy. Lord, somehow as I keep my focus upon you, could you somehow showcase gentleness, your gentleness, through my life? Lord, I do not want to demand my rights. I do not demand what I deserve. I, I, don't, I don't want to have to go up to someone and say, well, hey, you owe me. Lord, I, I want to be gentle. Which I understand is more than niceness. I understand it's more than mere kindness. Lord, I want to reflect the character and the nature of Jesus to my world. In this day, in this culture, in this darkness, Lord, we need Christians who are once again known for their joy and for their gentleness. Lord, would you give me opportunity today to be gentle where I don't have to demand my rights, that I can have a higher law of love being expressed in and through my thoughts, my words, and my deeds. Lord, this is only going to come about because you're in my life. But Lord, would you somehow begin to produce And would you allow me to walk in obedience to this idea of being known for my gentleness? Not just talk about gentleness, but that the world would actually begin to experience gentleness through my life. Lord, we love you. Thank you even for such an opportunity.
Oh, we need you. Lord, we give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen.